guys, welcome to episode 15 of the Guns and Yoga podcast. My name is Wendy Hummel, and this week we continue our podcast series where I interview other first responder podcast hosts. Although my guest this week isn't a first responder herself, she has devoted her career to serving cops through her therapy practice. Early in her career, Stephanie Samuels advocated legislation that eventually laid the groundwork for Copline, a 24-7 peer support hotline manned by retired cops, for cops. In this episode, Stephanie talks about the importance of confidentiality and trust. The cop line isn't a suicide hotline. In fact, many calls are just what she calls bad day calls. Three to three and a half percent are the result of critical incidents, and a half percent are those that she calls those that make your ass pucker. Volunteers are retired law enforcement officers who have at least 10 years on the job and must undergo a 45-hour training before answering the lines. They are assigned a partner, and the training emphasizes the importance of being able to think with their heads and feel with their hearts. We also discuss the servant's heart, a bit about how George Floyd has impacted the mental health of officers and finding culturally competent mental health professionals in your area. I really enjoyed my conversation with Stephanie, and I hope you will too. If you find value in this episode, please share it give us a review, and if you'd like to be notified of future episodes and want to receive our future newsletter, you can subscribe on our Podbean website. I'd love to hear from you about questions or suggestions for future guests or topics that you'd like to hear more about. Welcome to the Guns and Yoga podcast. My name is Wendy Hummel. Today, my guest is Stephanie Samuels. She is the founder and director of Copline. It's a 24-7 hotline manned by vetted retired law enforcement officers. She's also a psychotherapist that specializes in working with police officers and their families. She's a trainer, an author, and she hosts her own show, Steph Therapy 911, I believe on Facebook Live, and you can also catch it on YouTube. She's basically, in my opinion, a boss when it comes to supporting law enforcement officers. She's been doing it what seems like throughout most of her career. Uh, she's a straight talker and her no-nonsense approach, tell it like it is, is what makes her so successful in her work. Stephanie, thank you so much for everything that you do and for taking the time to talk to me today. Truly my honor. I, I just just flattered that you'd have me. And and again, you know, I, it's a lovely introduction, but <clears throat> I've always had the light lift. It is you that, you know, when you wear that badge and the weight of it, that, that is the heavy lift. So so I'm I'm just glad that I can do something to to support people like yourself. Well, and I appreciate that. You know, I, I checked out, we talked about this before we started, but I checked your website out and got a little bit more into your bio this morning before we talked. And one of the things that I learned is that you yourself wanted to be a police officer back <laughs> in the day and kind of did some digging. And it sounds like you realized that it wasn't necessarily your path, but what I think is really neat is that you ended up working and supporting law enforcement anyway. And I personally think it's very unique um, to find somebody like you that is so deeply passionate about working with our population, especially given the fact that you yourself didn't do it. Not that that's a requirement. So if you don't mind just kind of letting everyone know how you started out, uh, you have kind of an interesting background. 
So, so actually was probably not on there. So I, I don't love reading. As a matter of fact, the, the joke with my kids is I'd much rather write the books than read the books. So I was, uh, so I was flying, I was flying, I think, out west at the time. And uh, it was back in the 80s. And gangs were really big. And I was reading People magazine, which is, as we know, the best magazine for, for all factual information that one could get. Of course. Yes, thank you. So, um, so I was reading about gangs, and I was sitting next to this, this young girl. And she said to me, do you know anything about gangs? Well, I was now the resident expert because I had now read the People magazine article on gangs. <laughs> so, of course, I knew about gangs. I knew everything that anybody needed to know about gangs. So she then told me that her boyfriend was in a gang mm. out in California, and he wanted out. Well, I guess they hadn't covered in the People magazine that, like, you just don't get to get out of gangs. <laughs> so, so shame on people. So I was like, ah, oh, all right. And she's like, would you help? I'm, like, I'm young. I'm young. I'm like, absolutely. So she gives me her information or what have you. So I decide before I do this that I should do some ride-alongs. So I call up LAPD. They had their gang detail units at the time. Ended up doing a ride-along, um, quite a few ride-alongs there, and then with the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department before I, I went out and, and and got got kind of educated on what this was going to be like. I mean, I learned about the subsets of, of gangs, and, you know, at that time, females were carrying um, the weapons because females were first less. Like, there, there's just a lot of kind of interesting information including when we went into the gang area. So my first ride along was my most educational one because I learned what the word stirpes meant as I'm signing away this like legal document. And I'm like, what's a stirpe? He's like, any of your heirs? I'm like, okay, I don't have any of those. I'm like, cool word though. So, um, so ended up going out and, and kind of, trying to gain a greater understanding of, of what this quote-unquote gang situation was out in California. And I, I also learned that the backseat of police cars that you just don't get to get out of police cars. So um, so that was fun. Um, and I also was told that when we go into gang areas that the common enemy was law enforcement so that the cars would be shot up. And they said, our job is to take care of ourselves, not take care of you. The only way out of the vehicle is, you know, for one of us to, to open up that back door. And if we don't open it up, yeah, it was just, it was like, holy shit. <laughs> like, what did I get myself into? Um, and, and so, so I did more and more ride-alongs and, and it got pretty close with, with one sergeant. Um, and, and had an amazing amount of respect for, for what was being done. And, you know, I was, I was um, known as Florence Nightingale. And I remember in muster one day, they were going, who gets Florence Nightingale? And I'm like, who's Florence Nightingale? And they're like, let's draw straws. Whoever loses gets her. And I'm like, oh my God, it's me. So, um, and, and they said, you know, we don't have time. We don't have time to, to talk to them. We hook them, we book them. You know, if you want to do social work, become a social worker. Was the last thing I wanted to do. So, um, but I, I, it, that really prepared me for, 
for what would end up being where where I ended up. And I really do believe that that there aren't coincidences, that we are truly a sum total of all of our experiences. And that that those ride alongs became absolutely essential for me. And and the incident that had changed me was we were um, I was riding and we were there was a it was a sergeant I was riding with and that at the time a lot of the the gang detail units were plain clothed and um we went to a call and when he went to get out of the car we couldn't get back up we couldn't get anybody there um and he got out of the car and you know I'm running along with him and it was it was in uh it was in Carson or Compton and they have cinder block walls and so I remember running with him and I'm thinking to myself, what the hell am I doing? But anyway, out and about I go. And the, the suspect then jumps this cinder block wall. And I remember looking at this wall and I remember looking at the sergeant and the eyes are the soul and a platonic relationship. I mean, there's nothing going on. And I'm looking at this man and, and I'm seeing something I had never seen. Without saying a word, I am seeing fear. Mm -hmm. I am seeing a affection, you know, a, a towards me, and I don't mean a, a, a sexual whatever, but as a human being. And when he said, he said, if anything, he said, I'm paid to jump that wall. I don't know what's on the other side. He said, if, if I need help, you've got to go back to the car and you've got a radio for help. Wow. And I just, and I remember thinking my, so so that that longing in his eyes wasn't love, it, it was it was partner, partner love, mm -hmm. of partner, I, I might need you. Mm -hmm. And you know, he, he jumped the wall, I always forget to tell everybody, it's like, what ended up happening, he was fine. I mean, every, everything went fine. Um, but that night changed me because it went from being really fun. I was like 21 years old. Like it was fun to being very real. And I always say, you know, I, I looked at that wall. That wall became very symbolic for me in my life is could I jump the wall? And it wasn't physical. It was could I psychologically do this job and jump that wall? And did I want to? That is what really kind of ruminated with me. And the amount of respect for law enforcement from that moment on was a deeper one. I had been raised, you know, to respect law enforcement. You know, I, I grew up in, my dad was an attorney. He was actually a prosecutor um, in DC. There, there is, there is that people always say to me, you know, anybody in law enforcement, the answer is no. But I did grow up with a father that said, if you ever get arrested and you have a dime, don't waste it on me. So. <laughs> well, at least he was a prosecutor. Well, you know, yeah. so you've got that, you've got that in your corner. <laughs> so, so that was, so that was it. And then I ended up moving, um, back East and got a job on the lower East side of Manhattan, sixth and day. Uh, more deaths on six and D than any other location. And, and I got schooled on the D and I also realized that the mindset between cop and convict is very similar. 
and that at some point in time, they made a, somebody made a right-hand turn and somebody made a left-hand turn. And yet that mindset, that brotherhood, because what I learned about gangs was that this was a family. This was the only family many times that they had. And, you know, the power of thinking that somebody would kill for me, you know, that, that was just a, kind of incredible. I mean, not healthy, but, but that's what those gangs were about. And then when I looked at law enforcement, you know, that gang is FOP, PBA. There, there, there's this different brotherhood. And obviously when you go inside, there's, there's differences certainly once you get in there. But, but I really kind of looked at, at the importance of, of the background of, of getting on the job and of the gangs and, and was able to, to do incredibly well on the Lower East Side. Um, and I don't know, I, so, so my, my car, I had a little Volkswagen because I was from California. So I had a 1986 Volkswagen Cabriolet named Dominique, who I still have, by the way. Oh, wow. And, uh, <laughs> and so when I brought her over, so she was being, um, she was being vandalized in my $400 a month parking in Greenwich Village. Yeah, I believe it. So, so finally, so one of the, the, the bad guys who was in my, um, so I, I did GED programs for what I refer to as America's Most Wanted Youth. We were funded by the Juvenile Justice Department. And one of the guys who'd been involved in a, a, um, a murder when he was nine years old, I mean, he's now in his early 20s, he was one of the guys in the program. And he, he pulled me aside because he just, he just watched me. I was just falling apart because, I, because the car had been broken into now again, and she just meant the world to me. And so he, he came into my office and he said, drive your car and park it in front of Grand Street. I, or I was wearing Jacob Reese, the housing projects. And I'm like, not a fucking chance. And he looked at me as like, yo, man, nobody will touch your car. Hmm. So I will tell you that for two years, I was the only person I knew that drove to work in Manhattan, parked my car for free, and that car was never touched. And I have a pull-out stereo. So, uh, because the convertible had it, and I'll never forget, he walked into my office, and he puts down the stereo, goes, yo, man, I can't be watching your shit all day. <laughs> oh, my gosh, that's hilarious. I would have never Re guessed that. Respect. It yeah. was, all they taught me more about respect than my parents had been able to, because I learned it from a population I hadn't ever been exposed to. Sure. And when I didn't drive, they would walk me to, to 10th and D. They would wait with me for the bus to make sure that I got on that bus to go across town safely. Wow. So, so many things come to mind with everything that you just said. But if we could just back up a minute. You, when you were talking about your experience with the sergeant and the mm -hmm. wall and the ride along. Mm -hmm. So this is when, and you correct me if I'm wrong, this is when you were considering what path you were going to take because you were obviously Absolutely. in college at the time. Is that right? I think I was getting my master's. I was getting my okay. first master's at the time. Gotcha. Yeah. And so that, that, so that particular incident that you relayed to us, you were still thinking about becoming a law, 
becoming a cop. Is that Absolutely. right? Absolutely. And so would you say that it was that moment when you said, this isn't for me? Is that, is that kind of when the light bulb went on when you were like, I don't think that this is something that I can do, but yet I still want to serve. You talked about having that servant's heart earlier before we started, yeah. or was um, it kind of a gradual thing for you? So, so I think it was more of a gradual, that, that was my first moment where this wasn't, this became real. Yeah. I still continued to do ride alongs, but with greater fear. Mm-hmm with with an, an understanding that that this isn't necessarily about going out and meeting and greeting people and saving lives and doing kind of all that that great stuff that they don't have time to do that they don't have time to understand and again I was in a clinical psych master's so that that was always what had ruminated with me mm -hmm. um and I think probably the greatest course that that would change me in into where I was going on law enforcement was I ended up getting engaged and my you know as we lovingly refer to him so my first husband <laughs> <laughs> because as I, I always tease everybody I'm like Jews always do dress rehearsals so I come from a long lineage of divorce so it's, it's oh important <laughs> yeah right <laughs> So my poor daughters, I tell them that I'm not paying for their first their first marriage. They're like, that's just not fair. I'm like, it hasn't skipped a generation since my great grandmother. I'm like, they killed people. They didn't get divorced in the 1800s. We did. <laughs> so, um, so I, he had said that he would never marry a cop. And then we moved back east um, because he got headhunted for a job in New York. So. So I wasn't going to end up being, so I was processing with LAPD. Oh, so, okay. Yeah. So I ended up um, pulling the app. I mean, really actually went through the entire, I mean, from polygraph on. It's kind of an interesting, really interesting process. But, but knew I wanted to complete the process, but knew I wasn't going to, mm -hmm. um, to end up being an officer. And then ended up getting the job on the Lower East Side. So that that kind of gave me an incredible, what what was a breadth to a depth of of knowledge, of working with kind of two different populations and gaining tremendous insight. You know, when and you and I have touched on on this when we deal with now the 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 polarization that this country is in you know, dealing with, you know, conservatives and Democrats and, and kind of the, the assigned values that now go with each, um, with each delineation that, that I never looked at myself as having any political affiliation. It was never important to me. Helping people was important, whether it was the law enforcement officer, or whether it was the kids on the Lower East Side. So, and, and figuring out how, how best to meet those needs. It, it wasn't a, hmm, well, if you don't believe in blah, 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 then, you know, then I wouldn't help you. And, you know, and, and when, when you work with law enforcement, you know, I've dealt with so many shootings at this point in time. I remember one of the guys, you know, I said to him, just, uh, you know, are you angry? You know, the person he was involved in his second shooting and, um, and and the person ended up living and he and I was talking about the anger that that he had that he had to shoot not that he lived because 
that officer absolutely prayed that that he survived. Yeah, that was important to him, um, and that is something that I, I will touch on. But but his comment was, you know, some days you get the bear, some days the bear gets you. He said, I'm just grateful that today I got the bear, and that you know, and that has always you know struck with me as well as. Um, and he was just, he was revered. He's, he was just a cop's cop and did a lot of the, the, the trainings for, um, for elite units. And, and he said, one of the things that had bothered him is how many people had called him up saying, hey, I hope the son of a bitch dies. Hey, you know, good shoot, blah, blah, blah. And he said, I went home and I prayed that he didn't. He said, it, I did my job. I stopped the threat. He said the fact that he lived, to him, he had still done his job and that that would be important to him. And it really kind of helps understand the mindset that that truly goes on, that that this isn't about, you know, killing anybody. This is about being able to do your job, making sure that the public is safe and stopping a threat. Yeah, to hear you say that. Uh, and to how he relayed that to you doesn't surprise me at all. So I'm really, I'm, I'm really glad that you shared that because I think there is a misconception sometimes mm -hmm. about, about the mindset when officers are involved in, in deadly force encounters. So when you were, um, working that job with the gang members, which gosh, by the way, that's, that was really a, a unique story to say the least about the <laughs> gang members watching your car. Um, what, when did that shift or transition come in? So you kind of focus back on law enforcement when, how can you kind of tell us how that, <laughs> that all happened? So I'd love to tell you that that was like a really lovely, um, transition. <clears throat> So I ended up turning state's evidence. Um, they they were using um, the funds. They they were now defunding our program. Okay. And I knew that they had, um, and we were a incredibly successful program. And I I don't do politics well. My mouth doesn't do much really well. Um, <laughs> so I ended up um, approaching. Um, somebody and said, you know, here's all, I mean, I had document after document after document that I had access to that just showed how the funds had been misappropriated and said, you know, something, you know, now that we're not going to be funded, you know, here's one of the reasons why and kind of laid it out there. So I didn't have a job. So the question was whether or not I was going to go after it for whistleblowing or what happened. Like I, I wasn't. It ended up starting a series of other events, which was kind of fun. But um, so the, so I ended up leaving that job. I was living in New Jersey at the time. I've now worked with, you know, I've done my ride along with cops. I've worked with the convicts and I thought, well, you know, this is much more fun to work with the cops. So I went to our police academy um, and I said, who's doing um, who's doing the talking about, you know, officers involved in critical incidents, who deals with officers involved in shootings, untimely deaths, tie related incidents and all of that. And the director, you know, God rest his soul, director Scott looked at me kind of, you know, tilting his head, like I was speaking another language. I'm thinking, well, I've you know, been in California, maybe I'm speaking LAE. So I kind of <laughs> reiterated and he said, no one. And so that was 30 some odd years ago. 
And that really be, began my quest to make sure that I got psychological services. And I began riding with, um, I live in Monmouth County, New Jersey. So I, I began riding with everybody in, in Monmouth County to better understand kind of the, the, the stressors um, involved in their lives. At the same time, which just sucked. Um, so I don't love school. So at the same time, my master's in clinical psych in the state of New Jersey, <clears throat> they were not licensing um, that level masters. So I had two choices. I had to either get a second master's, which they were only licensing in social work, or mm -hmm. I had to go on for a PhD. PhD was going to take me too long. I was going to starve to death. And, um, and so I ended up going into social work. And... Like, you know, I, I'm just put on paths for reasons. So while I was getting my um, my master's in social work, one of the things was a policy class that I had to take. And one of the the assignments was I had to talk to my assemblywoman or assemblyman, you know, about a proposed legislation and how to, you know, and, and how the process works. So I had always known and had tried to, couple years before that, because I was still doing my ride-alongs because, you know, I figured I could do a private practice. I didn't realize that my master's wasn't going to work. So, um, so I had tried to already get in. Um, first round was in what they were trying to legislate, the Officer's Bill of Rights. So I was in probably the mid-90s and had put in a hotline there. Uh, the bill ended up getting killed. That one never went anywhere. Um, but ended up talking to the assemblywoman, and as good fortune would have it, that the assemblywoman came from a law enforcement family. And so we introduced legislation in the state of New Jersey for a hotline for police officers that would be answered by retired police officers. So, um, so while I was still getting my master's, <clears throat> I actually was able to introduce legislation and began an incredible grassroots effort of getting it passed. It was fast-tracked in the Assembly and the Senate. And, you know, I remember saying to my policy professor, I'm like, so what does it take to get an A? Because I've just introduced legislation. I mean, it's just kind of this amazing, you know, scenario. So, so I ended up being hired. So what ended up happening was it, it went through and then it got placed at the Department of Personnel. What I didn't realize was A, politics, and B, that because there is a funding source, it would have to go to the state. And they sent it out for an RFP. But the assemblywoman had called up the state and said, there's only one person that you can hire for legislative intent because she wrote the legislation. So I was hired by the Department of Personnel to oversee legislative intent, which was kind of cool. Um, so it actually ended up paying for, for my master's. So this, this horrible scenario, I was doing exactly what I should have been doing and, and where I needed to be. And so, so that legislation went through and that hotline ended up going through, but because it's run by the state and there's state and federal monies, there's issues that, that go on with that and legislative intent ended up really not being able to be met, but knew what needed to be done. And I ended up being sued for a trademark because I had trademarked for that. And State versus Stephanie Samuels was not pretty. Wow. I had a two-year-old. Um, and so, but again, you know, I'm put on this path 
And anytime I've tried to veer off of it, because um, I've just had those moments, I get pulled back in. So while I was going through all of it, the attorney said to me, um, because the whopping amount of money, so I had been owed money um, for the work I had done, and then the trademarks had cost me money. So I'd asked for, um, for them to pay what was owed, so it was $10,000. And the attorney said, I don't understand why you're asking for, for just that. He said, I, they will pay you out. I said, I don't think you understand. I just, I didn't do this for any money. I did this because it's what needs to be done. I just don't want to be out any money for having, you know, having done it. And he said to me, should you ever choose to do that? And I said, the only thing I will not sign is a do not compete clause. And he said, if you ever do this and you do it as a not-for-profit, he said, our firm will represent you pro bono. To oh, this nice. day, to this day, they have been good to their word on that pro bono. So, so Copline's been around for 16 years, and it is exactly what I had envisioned and had hoped for. And, and again, I was naive. You know, it, it's no fault of, of theirs or, or, or what have you. The state needed to do what the state needed to do, and. Um, and the person that that's the director is is doing what she feels is best, and you know that's what makes us all individuals. So so when I created Copline, I was able to to do it. Confidentiality for me remains the most single important issue in the world. <clears throat> I deal, you know, I, I'm getting tired of listening to the word resiliency um, ad nauseum. You know, depending on what the buzzwords are, peer support or what have you, this is where the funding now is coming from. So everybody that wants federal and state money hits on the buzzwords. I know of no greater resilient population than law enforcement, period. You guys come on the job, typically resilient. You come from a background that has, that has created the resiliency to begin with. Because the profile of a cop is this. Somebody who has grown up in crisis, does well in crisis, doesn't know how to live without crisis. Issues with a father figure or significant loss early in life. Issues of abuse, emotional, physical, sexual, or neglect. It makes for a really good cop. It makes for a difficult home life. There are exceptions to the rule. There are few exceptions to that rule. So you guys come on the job resilient. You have figured out how to survive every worst day of your life prior to getting on the front row of an epic shit show. So, so when I created Copline, it was knowing that the confidentiality that, that we could pump in $10 million to any program, but if you cannot get people to utilize the programs, they are worthless, absolutely worthless. Yeah, I and agree. If you're, and if you're not confidential, so the other hotline, one of the issues is that if you call, that they will send rescue if they think that you're suicidal. Well, here's what we know statistically. The Los Angeles Suicide 
hotline is the oldest hotline in the United States, created in, it went live in 1963. It is 58 years old. Between 1963 and 2019 is the last stats that I have. <clears throat> Over 7,500,000 suicidal calls came in, of which two people died by suicide on the lines. Two. It is statistically, it, you go out to about the ninth decimal before you hit the number three. So help me understand what you're saying, if you don't mind just backing yep. up. So you're saying that they were going to, if somebody indicated that they were suicidal, they were going to send someone to their location. How they is do. it that that, how is they it that ping, location was known? Phone. Okay. Okay. And so tell us, and I know you're, you're starting to head down this path, the difference and why someone, if you're trying to explain about cop line, how do they know and feel confident that that isn't going to happen if someone so, calls? So the decision was made. So number one, we take no state or federal money. Okay. Okay. Which makes it incredibly difficult. You know, financially, we haven't found that foundation yet. <clears throat> which we will obviously need, but, but for, for a stream of funding, but the integrity supersedes the stream. Mm -hmm. So cop line, they are trained in active listening skills. Mm -hmm. It is a 45 hour training. Wow. That, um, <clears throat> that they have learned in those 45 hours how to um, how to be able to listen, how to be able to sit in a hole with somebody, not look down at that hole, be able to get into that hole and to sit with them, not judge them and not problem solve. Law enforcement, most people know what they need to do. They don't need to be told. And I and I'm I'm part of the training cadre. I'm not the lead trainer at all. Um, I take my my little portions on PTSD. Is I I task everybody, and you'll hear me yelling at my poor little volunteers in there, that you have to think with your head and feel with your heart. Mm -hmm. That if they cannot get out of their heads to feel, they will not be able to answer these lines because they can get from every, those callers can get from everybody not on those lines, the same bullshit. That is not why cop line was set up. They need to be able to have a place where they can talk about anything without fear of, of that phone being pinged. So there are a couple things. Now, don't get me wrong, if somebody is homicidal uh, again, we have to, you know, try and figure out where they are or what have you. Very difficult. You know, we don't have it. We really don't have information. Um, child, you know, child sexual abuse. I mean, those are and elder abuse. Those are the three. The reason why every officer had to be retired is because there could be a conflict. If somebody talks about using illegal drugs, domestic violence, those different pieces. And yet, if we don't have a place for them to call and not worry about it, it just continues the cycle. And being able to say, I'm done. 
I, I can't do this anymore. So, so our percentage kind of goes like this. So we get anywhere between about 210 to 300 calls a month. So 96% of those calls are bad day calls. I will tell you the societal, uh, the societal shift is so significant. So, you know, I, I've been asked many times in interviews about COVID. Did we see an uptick after COVID? I'm not going to bullshit on numbers. We saw a slight uptick. But here was, here's the truth. We saw the uptick after George Floyd. Because the truth is, Cops took this job knowing that they were going to face the invisible enemy. Whether it's COVID, whether it's a bad guy hiding, it, 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 it's an invisible enemy. They were never prepared to become the enemy. That was the shift. So 96% of our calls that, that call in, because it was imperative that cop line wasn't a suicide hotline, because the belief is if if we can get them to reach out when it's low-hanging fruit, when it's just a shitty day, that when it becomes really significant and it's high-hanging fruit, they've had a good experience, they'll call back. And we have absolutely seen that. So, so it also takes a pretty special person. You know, as you're talking about all this, I'm thinking that person that retires, and I realize, you know, there's still a need to feel useful in retirement and, and to continue what you said earlier, that servant's heart, that mm -hmm. reason why most get into this profession. But um, but for really to, to go through the training and to be willing to sit with those people that we may never see, we'll never know who they are, but to be you willing will to sit and listen. Them. You will right. never know who they are. Correct. So that that's is... a big, that's a big undertaking. And so, you know, and, and I don't you'll never know off... what happens to them, Wendy. Yeah. Sorry to cut yeah. you off because that's the other. You could sit right. in that hole with them for two hours and never know that outcome. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty, that's a pretty special and unique person that's willing to do that. Um, and so I, I just wonder for those listening who may be in retirement or close to retirement that this sounds appealing to them. If you don't mind, and I don't mean to get you off course here, but I don't want to forget to ask you, what would that look like for someone who would be interested in perhaps being a volunteer for Copline? So the, the first, um, first kind of vetting process is on, on our website, there is a section that says volunteer, that there's a questionnaire that they fill out, and that questionnaire gets generated just to me. Okay. And then I get the questionnaire and it, it is a lengthy questionnaire. It is, um, it is a mindful one where you, you know, we're asking about lots of different pieces, you know, whether it be IA complaints against them, whether it be um, suicide, you know, thoughts, attempts um, and completions, just, just kind of the gamut because because we're not looking for the person who hasn't necessarily had a tumultuous career. Mm -hmm. They do need to have at least 10 years of full-time active duty. Oh, and they good. need to have retired um, in good standing so that they could be rehired. A and we certainly understand that, you know, injuries and they had to retire, they're still in good standing when they retire. Um, but you can't do it. And there's a specific question. Did you retire in lieu of discipline? Mm -hmm. 
So, so that, that stuff is, is all on there. And, and so that's kind of the light lift, you know, and then you get to, you know, chat with me, I go over the questionnaire if there's anything, and then you get invited to the class. So what's really incredible is every one of these volunteers has to pay their own way. Oh, wow. So that they have now paid to fly to typically or drive to wherever we are located for that training because we can only afford to do three a year. That's our most, our greatest cost is the training. And they pay for their hotel rooms, they pay for their meals and we try and offset. But that, that buy-in of that servant's heart without knowing that you're actually going to be able to answer those lines is incredible so that those that are doing it and i know the other hotline they're paid you know they paid either 20 or 25 dollars an hour that it's a very different mentality to go to a job that you're paid or to volunteer and and that that's that's where i think our success is because I sit in this room with people who I, I just, I think they're, they're just the most exceptional men and women. And, and they have so much that they've done that they, that they have to offer. And it's so difficult when either they realize that this isn't for them or they can't grasp the, the not giving advice, which is so hard for cops. Mm-hmm. But, you know, some yes. just that skill set for active listening, just, you know, th- those words roll off my tongue. It's active listening skills. It is so damn difficult to actually practice. Mm-hmm. So um, so that's the 45 hour training. And then once they are once they make it through the 45 hour training, they're given a mentor throughout the country. Um, and that person kind of, you know, it's our it's our FTO program for mm-hmm. for cop line. So, so they are trained for that, that call that comes in that makes their ass pucker. So the 96% is the bad day, three to three and a half percent is officers involved in critical incidents, untimely deaths of children, OISs, stuff like that, um, where they really just want to, you know, riots. <laughs> Those have now been part of it. And a lot of our guys have been through because we've got officers answering, retired officers answering from all over the country. A lot of them have been through riots in either Chicago, in California, I mean, just different areas. So they really have an incredible understanding of what this is like. And then that half a percent, that 1% are the ones that we say, make your ass pucker. They are the officer who calls up typically crying, who has a gun in their lap, who is going to kill themselves. And being able to deal with that, knowing that we are not initiating any rescue unless that person initiates it. So one of the the things, and and obviously being a clinician, I, I get this, that the worst thing in the world for an officer is to feel like they're out of control. Mm-hmm. So you dial 10 numbers for cop line. And and you are admitting on some level that I am now not in control of something in my life because I'm calling for help. And when you get copline on the phone, you're never going to hear them say, how can I help you? You're going to hear them say, what's going on? Because we don't always know if we can help them. So 
but we do know that they're never going to be alone. We do know that whatever's going on, we can deal with. And, and for that, that half to 1%, these, these retirees are so well-trained and, and building rapport, you know, cops don't have time to build rapport for God's sakes on the side of a road. (laughs) So, so being able to give them the ability to do that. I remember in, in my first class, I remember saying to one of the older gentlemen who I just adored, who's passed away, um, said to him, you know, this is going against everything that you guys have been doing. And he said, you have given us the opportunity to go back to when we were rookies and to do exactly what we had wanted to do Mm. back then. Wow. And I just like, I get goosebumps. Like that was brilliant. He said, all I need to do is go back 43 years. He's been on the job for 30 something. And then, you know, Copland came around after he's like, and just remember what those hopes and dreams are. And now I can actually do that with my brothers and sisters in need. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's amazing. So, um, so we have been incredibly successful. So that if it was you, Wendy, that had called and that, that, you know, your world had come to an end and that you, you just couldn't bear the pain any longer of being here and you, you've reached out that, that we spend a lot of time building rapport. I would ask you, you know, how are you thinking of killing yourself? And you're going to say, you know, you're gone. I've got it in my, and I'm going to ask you where the gun is. And you're going to say in your lap. And I'm going to say, I can't imagine the amount of pain that you're in right now mm-hmm. to want to end your life. And at, at some point I'm going to say, to you, you know, Wendy, would it be okay if you just put the gun in the next room while we talk? And most of the time, truly most of the time, the person on the phone is okay with that. And then we're going to continue to talk. And at some point, I'm going to establish who's in the house. I'm going to establish who you're close to. I'm going to establish all of that. And then I'm going to say, you know, Wendy, you've talked about Beth being your best friend. Do you think that if you texted Beth right now with me on the phone, that she would come over? And you're going to say to me, it's 2.30 in the morning. I don't want to wake her up. It's why I called. I say, you know, you're so thoughtful. I'm wondering if if Beth texted you at 2.30 in the morning saying that you were thinking of killing yourself and that, you know, your husband left and he took the kids and you just, you know, and, and she feels just totally alone. I'm wondering whether or not you'd be pissed off that she texted you at 2.30. So they are trained to deal with mm-hmm. it. Yeah. This this success has truly been in the not having to breach and allowing the caller to regain control as quickly as they can. Because you're talking to your partner now on the phone. And that is really where the success of Copline is. It's in the training and and the volunteerism. Yeah, it sounds like an amazing program. And another thing that comes up when you're talking about this, and I think about, 
just my own experience with peer support is how how difficult but yet rewarding that can be on the peer supporter and and what is it that maybe as an organization or do you recommend things individually for those peer supporters to do to take care of themselves or if there's continual or continuing it or anything like that because that's something that we try to offer with our team because it can be such difficult work. So it's a, it's a great question. I mean, and you know, one of the other nice things about Copline, but is also a, a hurdle for us, is in all likelihood, a caller that calls into the lines isn't going to be speaking to anybody that, that is in their area. It's just because the calls are funneled throughout the entire country. So the anonymity gets to gets to remain. So for our volunteers, there is always clinical backup on the lines for them. As I lovingly say to them, because it's normally me, I am not the cop shrink to the entire United States and every province of Canada. I am on <laughs> these lines for you guys in case you have a shitty phone call that that I will debrief. So, um, so they themselves are, are very much aware of that. They also work with a partner. And mm. I will tell you, that has been the coolest thing for them because their brotherhood that had really just been in their own departments has now, they've come together. It's like when you go into a specialized unit, you become very close with a specialized unit. Mm -hmm. These guys all now are part of a specialized unit but their partners in the specialized unit are all over the United States. Mm -hmm. So they will, when they're answering, so if you and I were answering the, the lines, you know, you're in Kansas, I'm right now in California, is that we would be, you know, I, I would text you, you know, I'm like, hey, Wendy, you know, we're on tonight, I'll take the first call, blah, blah, blah. I get a call and I'm like, hey, just had a really difficult call, blah, blah, blah. So you and I would probably end up debriefing together. Oh, okay. And then, um, and then being able to say, you know, hey, the line dropped. So if a 732 area code comes up, I got it. Gotcha. So those two are in constant communication throughout the course of their shift. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And, and then they have clinical, so it's me. Mm -hmm. And then we do... Um, and then there's a mentor for those that are just coming on the lines and they will also monitor them. And then um, we do continuing education on a quarterly basis and that's done on a private YouTube. So we will um, pick a topic, whether it's um, third party calls. Uh, so I think we just did our last one was on third, uh, was on third party calls. So being able to role play. And so our lead trainer is, um, he has a dual expertise, Dr. Jay Nagdeman. So Dr. Nagdeman was the director of the Los Angeles Suicide Prevention Hotline. <clears throat> and then he ended up going over and he now works um, in the behavioral science uh, services at LAPD. Oh, okay. So he's got the dual expertise. So, uh, so Dr. Nagdeman always does, um, he's our lead trainer for every training that we have in person and then for our uh, our in-service that he will typically do it, whether it's me that role plays with him or a lot of times our volunteers will um, will volunteer to then do the in-services with us. And then we'll pick a specific, you know, area, like I said, third party calls and, and, and navigate that way. 
and the in-service is a pain in the ass. I mean, for everybody, but it's, you know, sometimes 45 minutes, and then there are, um, there are questions that have to be answered so that we know that they've watched the in-service, and then those are, you know, kept up and, and documented to make sure that all of our volunteers are doing what they need to be doing to hone in on these skills. That's yeah, that's great because not only is it good to have that continuing ed, but more importantly, you guys have obviously thought this through about having that continual support with their peers and then also well, I guess it sounds like you are it as far as clinical support, but something. Um so maybe you you might need some more volunteers that are clinicians is what it sounds like. So what is that what is that like? So would absolutely love for clinicians, but here's the, <laughs> here's the other part of that is I have incredible clinicians, but when I say to them, don't forget, we're 24 seven, seven days a week. Yeah. So I need to, while I'm in session with my patients, make myself available to answer phones. Wow. And I have clinicians that will say, and, and I do that anyway because I have a a solely pretty much law enforcement practice. Mm -hmm. And these are not malingering pains in the asses. If they need me and they're calling, it's because there is something significant. I have never had a patient that's been pissed off when that phone rang because they they have known what it's like to be that caller. So they're always grateful. So, um, so a lot of times clinicians that I want to to take the cop line calls will say, well, I can't do it while I'm in session for eight hours. Well, I can't tell my my listeners, well, for these eight hours, do me a favor, make sure that the callers aren't in any type of crisis that's going to throw you off. They need to have that support. Well, and that is, lends credibility to your patient, your your clients that are in front of you or with you oh, because awesome. they see how dedicated you are to working with law enforcement, if you're willing to stop something in the middle of what you're doing to answer a call, that's that's what I take out of that. Thank you. I mean, and and yet others will will argue and, and understandably that it's rude, and I mm -hmm. get the it's rude, except a first responder completely understands and appreciates mm -hmm. when you're in crisis because again they get what that's like that is not rude if if it's you know my kids calling just to bullshit like you know the fucking hairdresser to redo something like that that's not answer you know yeah it, so that's that's what's been um important so clinicians are it is imperative for me um there was one time when unfortunately i ended up in the hospital i ended up calling up dr nagdeman and said you know I, I, you are the one that I need because mm -hmm. you know every single volunteer and you'll answer the phone, you know, if nothing else, because you, you get this. So, yeah, but that well, that's is, good. You have backup at least mm -hmm. so that Absolutely. you have someone that can help. And, you. and I do have other therapists that I, that I would call up, you know, on good do that. So, so it kind of leads me into something else I wanted to talk to you about anyway, which is uh, culturally competent clinicians. So one of the things when you and I talked about this for a bit before we started recording is that what you said has been something that I've personally been running into um, as I as I vet and reach out to clinicians in our community um, in Kansas is that very stringent nine to five or eight to five and not willing to go after hours mentality. And, and while I respect that, 
um, it's very difficult for me because I feel like as I say first responders, but law enforcement, um, anybody who's in a first responder profession, we're, we're willing to give up so much in what we've chosen to do. And I feel like if you're wanting to work with us, that's got to be something that you're willing to do as well. So on one side, I get that, that people want to have their time and should have their time. But, but to me, if this is a population you want to work with, you have to be, be able to, to do that in some capacity. So I don't know if you could speak to that. How, how do you find people that are willing to do that? It is, it is a great question. It is absolutely a great question. Um, so, so there are certainly really important factors and I think the FOP is doing a really good job in, in vetting and looking at, you know, the, that cultural competency piece. And I've got to give, give them credit. I was at their, um, one of their wellness um, conferences not too long ago. And, and one of the, the things that they do, so first of all, cops want to come into an office. So I, you know, telehealth is great and, mm -hmm. and there certainly is, is room for it. I love being able to do it. It gives me other options. It allows me to travel and, and lecture and do other things and still keep my caseload. Um, so all that's great, but cops want to see me. They want to watch my, like, like you get me from like chest up <laughs> and, and they want to see my body language. They want to see what my office looks like. It, they, they want, that's a, that's a really important connection to them. So I can certainly tell you that, that therapists that are only going to do telehealth are going to be eliminated. That, that cultural competency, they need to really understand that. And, and, you know, because I've only, you know, I got raised with, with cops as a clinician, that's all I've seen. And I realized that it's kind of weird that I only see cops. Like that's kind of, you know, I didn't realize that, that other people like that see cops actually see civilians. That's an interesting concept to me. <laughs> um, so that my office, so that everything in my office screams I'm law enforcement friendly. And I never thought about that because it's just who I am. You know, I've grown so what up. are some examples of that? Like, what do you mean? Everything in your office screams so law enforcement I've got, friendly. So, I, so the legislation um, that for, uh, for the hotline in, in New Jersey. So the legislation is there. The pen that was signed into law with, that's hanging up. I got the, um, I got the President's Award from Social Work for the legislation that was done. I um, received a, um, a honorary citizen award from, um, from one of the unions mm -hmm. that's hanging. You know, my diplomas are hanging. The other thing, and you've probably heard me talk about it. So I, I've got this incredibly ad nauseum amount of Wizard of Oz shit in my office. <laughs> okay. That I always forget is there because I sit with my back towards it. And it just looks like I have this affinity for that. So when I tell the story of the Wizard of Oz um, and how it became so important in my practice, that ruminates with every single cop. So they have now added to the ad nauseum amount of shit that is Wizard of Oz stuff. So, so that's there. Um, I've so got what is that stuff. story, if you don't uh, mind? Okay. I know you, I've heard you I'll, I'll talk about it 
Okay. okay. I've heard it mentioned in your intro to your show, yeah. but I don't know that I've ever actually heard you talk about it. And, and you can finish answering the other question too, but I, so however first, you want to do it. So my first patient was a 64-year-old man who was mandated to see me. 65, they're done with a career. So you can imagine how happy he was to be mandated. Worst case scenario in the entire world. And I was young, so his first patient. He was the nastiest man I had ever met in my entire life. Mm. And when he yelled, I just was just shook. So so he had patrolled in a very wealthy bedroom community. So you're going to go back now 30 years in my career, and you're going to go back 24 years. So you're, you're at 50, about 55 years now. Okay. So he'd been on the job for six months at the time that he was involved in a shooting. Crazy bedroom, you know, wealthy community, just really crazy situation. So, um, so that night, he went to a friend's house and his friend poured him his first drink. Game on. Mm. So I had in my office a seasoned alcoholic who had dealt with everything that way. So kind of speed ahead, he had four children, um, all of them older than I was at the time. Um, and he had a relationship with none of them. One of them actually was in his department. So I, I then find out that... <clears throat> His first wife, who he had two children with, left him for his best friend. Oh, left him, left him with the children. So he took care of those kids. She came back two years later, and she wanted the kids. He never told the kids that he fought for them in court. Mm -hmm. Well, fifty years ago, no single man was ever getting his children. Yeah. So he lost the kids. So bitter, 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 bitter. And, you know, so over time, I mean, you know, he knew he was bunkering down with me for the year. There was certainly a, a, a relationship that was, that was being built. So his, um, his best friend at the time was in the hospital. And I said to him, you going to see him? He's like, no. I said, why not? He's because I can't do anything. And I said, when's if I told you that he was scared and he needed, that's all I said. He cut me off and he said, I'd stand there until I dropped. Hmm. And then I realized he was the wizard. Hmm. That behind the curtain was this gentle old man that would give you his shirt. And then I realized what's the only thing a cop wants to do at the end of the day? Go home, Dorothy. Most loyal canine, Toto. And that they don't know if they have the heart, the brains, or the courage to do what's going to be asked of them. And me, somehow or another, I end up as Glinda. It was my job to watch over them. Oh my gosh, you just gave me chills. <laughs> so that is how the Wizard of Oz was born. Wow. And there isn't a cop that, when you tell the story, doesn't think like, oh my God. So um, so that's in my office. The challenge coins are in my office. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have a, a, a Limoges set of monkeys hear no evil, speak no evil, mm -hmm. um, see no evil. And it's my reminder that it is my job to bear witness to pain, that I am paid not to become one of those monkeys, that as much as I would like to, that I am being tasked with the job to make sure that I don't become one of them. Mm. So, so when you come into the office, it's pretty clear that that all those things are you know, will make me law enforcement friendly. 
And I think that it's important for officers to come in and to see that, um, to feel like, uh, particularly now with what's going on in society, that, hey, she's a friendly, you know. Mm -hmm. So uh, cultural competency as far as that goes, I feel very strongly that officers or that, uh, that cop clinicians need to do ride-alongs. And I don't mean like, okay, so on Saturday between my kids' games, I can get in two hours in, you know, where I, where I live. I'm like, you bunker down for the whole shift and it's inconvenient. Now, I remember, I remember doing a midnight shift, which I, I'm a horrible midnight shift person. So I, absolutely that one would have killed me. I remember coming home and I remember not knowing if I wanted to eat, sleep, or shit. So I remember taking a bowl <laughs> of cereal into the bathroom with me so I could oh. knock off two events at the same time and pray I didn't fall asleep. I was just oh, like, God. oh my God, how did people do this? So, but I, you know, and you can imagine when a cop, so the first time that I go into a car and they're like, hey, how long are you going to be here for? I'm like 12 hours because they were doing, you know, a lot of our guys are on Pittman schedules doing 12 hour shifts. The look of horror. And I'm like, mm -hmm. if you need, if you need to coop, you can coop. And, and they then, you know, originally they think my chief put me, you know, put them, you know, me with them. They then think it's IA that put me there with inside of two hours with my mouth. They clearly know nobody put me there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Oh boy. Well, so how do you, how do you yourself, like you, you kind of alluded to this earlier during your Wizard of Oz story, but how, what do you do to kind of take care of yourself? Cause you just, you're, this is, this is your life. I mean, you're listening to everything that we come to you and talked about on the cop line. Obviously you're dedicated to that 24 seven. Like right now you're kind of sort of on vacation or coming back from vacation and you're still working. You're just so dedicated. So how do you, what do you do to kind of keep yourself? sane for lack of a better word so so exercise has is, is always been in my in my life so i okay. i continue to do that i'm not a reader mm -hmm. um i so so if i hit youtubes mm -hmm. i'll hit watching um so like america's got talent i i love watching like if i if i got one skill it'd be to sing because i can't mm -hmm. sing and just watching that surprise person that has an amazing voice that people haven't mm -hmm. heard, like Paul Potts's first audition, you know, Susan Boyle. I mean, just you mm -hmm. know, people that that have ended up where you look at them and you're like, oh Lord, this is going to be, and they <laughs> sing, and you're just so so kind of. I, I will look for the happy stories. Um, in general, and I much like law enforcement. I'm pretty numb which kind of sucks um, just from constant exposure. Like when I listen to clinicians that don't have a cop practice and they're like, you know, how can you listen to the most horrendous shit and not be affected by it? I, you know, I actually do think that there's obviously something wrong with me, <laughs> but, but yet when I watch coming home videos of military, certain things, I am, I am weepy. And, and I do address that in private practice because if I'm weepy, I know so are the guys. Mm. And, you know, they don't talk about that because nobody asks them those questions. I always say, I don't think I'm a great clinician. I just think I ask great questions. So, um, 
So I find myself getting emotional at, you know, at, at different, um, at different things. Um, and I, and I actually appreciate being able to feel because I don't always do that. So it is important for me to be able to kind of do a, a self-care check-in of, have I just become some numb, cold, callous bitch? Or, you know, do I still have the ability to kind of um, be human? And, you know, and I know that kind of sounds weird, but I also know that if you've got officers listening to this, that is, that is absolutely um, clicking with them. So um, I don't love necessarily group things. Uh, I, I like being able to run. And a lot of times I'll try and do it without music. You know, if I've got a lot going on in my head, I try not to drown it out with music. I'll try and, and use that time to process out what the hell it is. So matter of fact, my husband will say, if I'm going out without headsets on, he's like, I know it can't be good for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, what I love about what you're saying is, first of all, it's real and it's honest. And it just demonstrates how people are so different. Like you, you just talked about probably five different things. I know you don't like the word resilience, but let's call it something else. What you do to keep no. your, you know, to keep yourself strong mentally is that you talked about exercise. You talked about music. You talked about private practice. I mean, there's not a one size fits all mm -mm. for, for everyone. And so I love that you said, you know, that awareness piece is, you know, what you need, it's going to be different for everybody. And that is, you know, when it is a great point and so important because it, it, the other thing is that you need to have more than one thing because mm -hmm. if that one thing is taken away. So, you know, with running, I've had knee issues. I've had other issues. Yeah. I, I've needed to be able to have another go to, to be able to, to pull a plug and stuff. So that, that's really important for, for people to have more than one thing. Definitely. Definitely. So. Um, I don't want to forget to ask you about your show. I don't want to call it a podcast because it isn't a podcast, right? It's a, so it, it, it is, it's a Facebook live. I've, um, I actually have, have chosen to do a hiatus. Um, it is just so much time and energy to be able to do that. And I really felt when you talk about self-care, that was one of the most difficult decisions for me. Mm -hmm. was to be able to say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to wait until after Labor Day to, uh, to kind of, you know, revisit this and, and go back up. So, um, so it's on Facebook live. It's, it's Steph therapy, nine one one with Stephanie Samuels, um, which is to, which typically airs at seven o'clock Eastern time on Sundays. But, you know, if anybody wants to see old shows or whatever, there's a YouTube channel and, and it's on Facebook and what have you. But um, but I also felt that it was important. One of the things that my patients had said is it didn't seem fair that the only ones that got this incredible mouth was them. <laughs> that um, <laughs> that they wanted me to be able to, to reach out so that other people throughout the country kind of knew that there was help out there, that you know, what a cop shrink looks like, what they sound like, because I am not your typical what people believe um, is there. And, I would and, agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. And that stigma just needs to, to kind of be removed. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was the importance of being able to do it. So, you know, I, I'm not sure, you know, finding guests is difficult. And 
and I, I work anywhere between 75 to 90 clinical hours a week in private practice. Wow. And then and then I take cop line and cop line has gotten busier and busier and I just don't want to, you know, I'm not gonna be the next Oprah, so I or Dr. Phil. So I need to to kind of balance out where I'm going to be the most helpful. Um and for me what what's the the best balance in in a world that has little balance. So Yeah, and I I appreciate that and for, for those who are living under a rock and may not have heard your your show, um, I think it would be of value, anyone who's listening who's interested in what you've said so far. You've had some really, really good guests, some really good shows. So yeah, that resource will live on. I mean, it will live on. It's always there, regardless if you do more or not. Thank you. I mean, and, and for what you're doing, I mean, and that you've been doing it for a couple of years, I mean, hats off, Wendy, because I, I do know how difficult it, it can be getting the guests, getting them on, not not knowing necessarily what they're going to say. Um, just just so much that goes along with the planning. That's you know that, that you get an hour podcast. I know that we've run run over, but but all the work, the hours and hours that you put in, and your dedication to the population and your reason for doing it is just so beautiful. And I I thank you. I thank you for for everything that that you're doing and that you've done. Um, and for being part of the solution. That's just huge. Well, that means a lot coming from you. I mean, it's it's actually yeah. um, not hard because, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about this before we hit record, but when I'm able to find people like you and so many others that mm -hmm. are talking about these things that aren't easy to talk about, and especially you, you've been you've been doing this much longer than I actually realized. You're a, I would call you a trailblazer now. I should have added that to, to your intro. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, seriously, and people who are doing this and are truly doing it for the right reasons, uh, everybody wants to talk about it. And so I just think it's important to get this information out as long as I can keep it up every week or every other week. And my, my husband is willing to put up with all the technical stuff that I think it's important to keep talking about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And being able to get resources out there that people don't necessarily know are there and, right. and making sure that they are safe resources. You know, I, I feel very strongly that we are tasked with with vetting them ourselves. You know, I always say to people, don't don't trust me. You know, I founded the damn thing, I'm the director of it. Fucking call, you know? I, you need to call yourself to be able to vet to see what those lines are like. You know, that's just so, so important. It's funny you say that because this morning when I was uh, looking through your website, I'm like, I should just call just you should. just to kind of see, but I'm like, well, she's gonna know my number, so I didn't, so maybe so maybe I, I, I will. So, so the answer is I, I'm never going to know your number because that number isn't generated. Oh, so, good information. So, so there is no document. So what would come up for us is an area code. Gotcha. But but I as I'm sitting here in California, my area code seven three two. We have no idea where that caller is calling from or anything else. Okay. So um so no, I, by all means, you you can call, you can block your number. We don't care. It's not about that. You can call yourself Minnie Mouse. We, we, that's not what what we're there for. So that's what's that's what's really important to know. But you know, one of the things, and we've been asked this, and I will throw this out there, 
is about texting, is whether or not um, Copline does texting. The decision, so we had, we did a whole um, in-service on texting, um, on seeing which volunteers were comfortable, because don't forget a lot of our volunteers are older. Yeah. Um, and then to be able to set up texting. And you know, we put this out, and again, we've got amazing volunteers. We started getting pushback. We don't normally get pushback. And one of our volunteers said, and she's right, that under the Fourth Amendment, a cell phone can be removed. And there is, and confidentiality is gone. That mm. those texts will now be looked at. So the decision was then made, although the capacity is there, to not text for, for truly confidentiality of an mm. officer. And so, that's a good point. Yeah. Again, everybody's invaluable to us and we have blind sides and the road to hell is, is paved by good intentions that the last thing I'd ever want is to go against what we founded this for was to have a safe place. It's rare that, um, that departments give departmentally issued cell phones. And so a, under that case, you're fine because your personal cell phone will not be taken. But if your personal cell phone is also used for business, it's going. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's, that's a really good point. And, you know, again, one of the big things in your, you keep saying this, though, is that barrier to accessing resources is that confidentiality piece. And by you explaining that, didn't even think about that until you brought it up. That's good information for people to have because maybe somebody who would have used not used the resource previously now knows even another layer that you guys have thought all of this out as to how important that is and just removing that stigma. I mean, and if people have questions about confidentiality or whatever, they can, you know, I'm pretty accessible. You know, I'm pretty accessible. So, but, you know, by all means, you know, reach out, absolutely reach out. Yeah, I can vouch for that because you, uh, you have always reached back out to me very, very shortly. As a matter of fact, I remembered as we were talking that I reached out to Copline a while back, even before this podcast, because it was something I was really interested in just in starting the work that I've been doing. So I appreciate well, thank that. Thank you for everything, truly. And thank you. It was really an honor to be on your show. I really thank you for, for spending so much time with me today. Well, and I appreciate you. Is there anything that we left out that anybody needs to know? I'm going to include the link to Copline and to your show, um, to your website. So anything else anyone needs to know about you before we sign off? Nothing about me. Just just to know that, that truly they are never alone, that their loved ones can call Copline, that it's active retired family members, and that they can do so without fear of of any repercussions. I mean, that's the most important thing to, to all of us. So thank you. Yes. Well, thank you again. It's been a pleasure and an honor to speak with you today. You thank too, you so Andy. much. You're all right. welcome. All right. Bye Take bye. care. You too. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Stephanie Samuels. If you're interested in checking out her website, learning more about Copline or her show, Steph Therapy 911, take a look at the show notes for the links. And thanks for listening. Thank you.